Good afternoon, Dennis Fithian, Detroit Sports, ready to get things underway. Pod number 15. Coming up, how a former Little League coach was key to a Tiger starter making it to the bigs. But first, our guest. You probably remember him from his days at FSD covering Detroit teams. But since then, he's been on the move to California and now out in the Big Apple on the big desk for ABC7 in New York. It's Ryan Field who's on the other end of the line. How you doing, Field? Dennis Fithian, my friend. Very nice to hear your voice, buddy. It's uh, it's always nice to catch up with friends from Detroit and uh, all my media buddies. And, you know, for the most part, I think we've all done a good job of staying in touch all these years. I mean, I've been gone uh, seven years next month from Detroit, which is crazy how long it's been. Uh, so it's nice to hear from you and great to catch up. Yeah, well, you know what? You do a good job. I think people on TV, they're, they're just made for social media and connecting with people. And I feel like uh, in, in all of your stops, like you went out to California, and I'd look there and you'd be putting up these pictures. And I'm like, this picture isn't real. Like these sunsets <laughs> and the, you know, the palm trees. And, you know, then you're off to New York and, you, and you're putting some of these pictures of Manhattan and, and some of the chopter pictures with the fog going into the uh, into the city. And I'm like, man, this isn't real either. But, man, I, I th- those are real pictures, right? Yeah, the filters definitely help. That's for sure. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean. I mean, for the most part, dude, I mean, I've lived in, you know, really three of the most opposite places you could ask for, Detroit, L.A., and New York. And each one of them has amazing things about them. And, uh, you know, I've learned to appreciate the best in, in all three. And obviously living in the city is certainly different than anything I've experienced before. But uh, it's been a hell of a ride here these last three and a half years. And, you know, sometimes I like to take people with me on this ride via social media uh, between Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and posting pictures and, you know, just kind of staying in touch. And uh, it's just the way of the world these days and kind of the nature of the beast with our business. So, you know, I kind of pride myself on uh, doing that on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, I see the pictures when you're getting ready to do your 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 sports. Now it's different, you know, sometimes standing up, sometimes I don't know if you're home or in a, a different room, but you know, you seem like you've gone to to breaking out tennis shoes uh, quite a bit with your suits. Like, is that just well, so, I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's no rules during quarantine, right? <laughs> especially when you're in studio, uh, and especially when they only show me from the waist up, even when I'm standing. So uh, I've definitely taken advantage of uh, a little more comfort here during these trying times. But for the most part, I mean, I'm still going into the studio five days a week, which is nice. I have a sense of normalcy, uh, still doing the six and the eleven. Uh, in studio, I live a short walk uh, from work, so that definitely helps. Uh, they gave me the option of doing the sports from home, which I know a lot of folks back in Detroit are doing that. And frankly, uh, sportscasters and newscasters around the country are working from home. But, you know, it just doesn't have quite the feel that I want to give with my sportscast. So I want to keep it, you know, as professional as possible. Um, so I try to get into the studio, and, and thankfully they've been able to let me do that. And, you know, if nothing else, it gives me a little sense of normalcy during these very unnormal times, uh, just to be able to go into work and, um, you know, have a, have a somewhat of a, a normal day that I'm used to. So that's been a plus yeah, uh, well, during these last crazy two months. Yeah, sorry. I, you know what? I like the trend over the years where, it, you know, not just you, but, you know, you'll, you'll see on TV guys wearing nice suits, but then the, the shoes will be. The, the the shoes will be you know tennis shoes which I think is cool. So the normalcy when when you're walking, you want to talk sports with you, but 
I think uh, it's probably a lot different with the last two months with the pandemic. What's that last two months been like you uh, in New York? I mean, you're, you're walk to work. I mean, it's probably packed normally, but now what are you talking about? 10% of the, of the people on the streets? That that's probably a good uh, percentage. I mean, maybe 20%, but I mean, if you've ever been to New York, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, um, you know, it's, it's, chaotic here 24 7 between the traffic and the noise and the cars and the people and the bikes and the whatever else and you know the city for the most part has been a ghost town as crazy as that is to say um i know a lot of people have left town they've gone and stayed with relatives um in other cities Uh, a lot of people once they lost their jobs frankly just left the city um you can definitely notice it plus a lot of people are just staying in too but uh, it's definitely a different walk to work. Everybody has masks on here, even outside. Um, but a, a city that prides itself on being so energetic uh, and full of life from the art standpoint with museums and Broadway and all this stuff and everything is closed down. It's just such an eerie time to be in the city. But, you know, we're just trying to make the best of it. And uh, it's historic, frankly. A uh, quick story. I took my bike from Columbus Circle, which is basically at the base of Central Park. Uh, last month, I took it down Broadway, which goes right through Times Square, took it all the way down to the water by the Statue of Liberty. And I kid you not, for 95% of the bike ride, not only did I not see one car, I didn't even see one person on the street. And you talk about it almost was like that Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, like end of the world type stuff, where I was driving through the heart of Manhattan and there was not a soul in sight. And it was the it was so eerie and just historic, really. And I, I was kind of it was one of the, the coolest things I'd ever done in my entire life. And I'm so glad I did it. Um, and it's obviously happening under unfortunate circumstances. But it just gives you an idea of the effect that this pandemic has had on so many people, especially in this city, one of the greatest in the world, one of the busiest in the world. But you'd never know it the way it is and the way it looks right now. Wow. That is uh, amazing, riding your bike right there through the, oh, through was, the big it apple, was crazy. Yeah, I mean, Times Square, I was like basically the only person there. And it was the middle of the day on a Sunday where you'd have thousands and thousands and thousands of people there typically. It was just bizarre. And, uh, you know, you but, but like anything else, we're starting to get used to it. It's become the norm here, it, it, as crazy as that is to say. Yeah, you know, I went to New York one time and – it was a we. I I, I took the, the boat around the island. I went up to, you know, the, I saw it high. I saw it low. It, it it was awesome. And you know the the thing that I remember it was almost like the the perfect experience when I went to the old Yankee Stadium. You know, I like passionate sports fans. And the old Yankee Stadium, it was Yankees Cubs were sitting way up in the left field upper deck, and it was it was so pure New York because the guy that sit next to me was kind of looking me up and down. But you know, he was he was nice <laughs> enough, but. You know, the Yankees hit a home run like the second inning, and finally, you know, he comes over and he says, hey, how come you're not rooting for the Yankees? And I, and I said, well, I'm from Detroit. He's like, you're not rooting for the Cubs, are you? He's like, well, let's go. Let's go, man. Let's root for the Yankees. He kind of called me out. And I was like, yeah, man, this is like even a, like the Bronx Zoo, man. He was pretty intense, even in the upper deck on a like a Saturday afternoon. I liked it. They're not shy here, my friend. They <laughs> yeah. are not shy about anything. They'll tell you what you think at all hours of the day at any place. They will let you know. Yeah, you know what? Uh, we don't have sports, but we do have the past. And you know what? I think of you. Uh, my favorite memory was was you with with Jim Leland uh, before, but really after games. Sometimes out on an island, 
And I'm going to ask you about a couple of these. You might remember some of them, but I, there was one time there was a series in Cleveland. I don't remember the year, but, man, it seemed like the, the worst possible weekend they could have had, worst possible loss where they, you know, they blew it in the ninth, all kinds of decisions, you know, backfired for Leland. And, you know, you got to go down there in that postgame, just you standing there, and, and Leland's, like, chewing on this piece of steak, and, and you're just like uh, – uh, you know, Jim, you know, the ninth, what now? Like right away, he's like, you know, asking you what now? And, and you, you gotta, I don't know that specific, uh, series. Do you remember the, the tenseness of, uh, of Leland, uh, staring you down? Well, it's funny. They all seem to blend together after all the years of covering him. And for those viewers of yours that don't know, basically both the radio folks like yourself and the beat writers would give the TV person carte blanche and we would conduct what in essence proved to be a one-on-one interview with Jim Leland after the game, right? Yeah. Now, times like those, I wish it wasn't a one-on-one interview, and I would have loved to just put the microphone down like a press conference-style setting and let everybody else ask the damn questions. But I I was kind of getting fed to the wolves, uh, and, you know, kind of the the guy trying to test him out here and kind of take the brunt of the punishment for everybody else after he calmed down. And uh, that's that's what ended up happening. And you know, I would kneel down next to him some of these times, and his hands would be shaking as he's cutting into his food because he's so upset. And you just know, no matter what you say to him, he's already going to explode regardless. He already knows what he wants to say, and there's nothing that you can say that's going to make the situation any better. So you basically go in there. I knelt down next to him, and you're just ready to take whatever you have coming to you. And, you know, I I think it made me a better reporter. I think he made all of us better reporters in terms of, you know, the way we ask questions. And, you know, he would always like, you and I used to do these things that we would mess around with each other. What now, as you referenced? And you know damn well he heard what you said, but he just wanted you to repeat the question so he could think of an answer what he wanted to say himself. And he would use these little tricks with the media and little mind games and he would blow up at you. And then the very next day, He'd see it, he'd be laughing and joking like nothing ever happened. And it, it was just the Jim Leland way. He's, he's, a, he's a treasure in the sense that he's an old-school baseball guy, and frankly, there aren't too many of those guys left with us. And, you know, as much as I disagreed with how he handled the media sessions a lot of times uh, in terms of his outbursts, you know, I, I always respected what he had to say, and I respected the job that he did and the stresses that came with it. Um, it was definitely not an easy situation, but I got news for you, bud. It was not any easier being you or I in those situations either, uh, having him just unleash the fury uh, of a bad loss and uh, just take it out on a, a poor, unsuspecting reporter like myself. Yeah, I didn't like it, and I don't like how baseball, like they have a they have a first-class and second-class type uh, approach down there after the games. Like the writers, like they – all get to sit there and they get this like extra session afterwards and the right. elect- the electronic media, which Leland's thinking that all you guys want is sound bites and chewing yesterday's breakfast. You know, we have to jump over the wall and go at them. And then these guys got to just sit back <laughs> and you know, you know, you're going to ask him like, yeah, Jim, you pitch to this guy, Sal, this catcher, you know, here's Verlander. You know, throwing a breaking ball. Yeah, oh, you know he's going after you. But sure enough, the writer is like, "Yeah, Jim. You know, uh, he'll calm down after that." That was really something. You know, one you never got to use the quote, but it was one of my favorites, and it was a really small one. It was in the, it was in the dugout, and you had a story about. I think it was, you know, how the players keep in peak shape and everything, 
And I, you were saying, hey, Jim, you know, with the, the regimen or, you know, the, the diet, not only the workout and everything else. And he just looked over at you and he said, you know, don't BS yourself. These guys aren't eating a small slice of watermelon and one strawberry. I <laughs> cleaned it up a little bit, but it wasn't a usable quote, but he looked right at you and kind of said it like kind of wry. And I was just like, yeah, okay. I'm not going to BS myself. That really wasn't the, the answer, but uh, I loved it. Oh, dude. And, and that's just one of the many classic moments with that guy. And the word, the phrase I was looking for is sacrificial lamb. That's kind of <laughs> how I in a lot of those scenarios. Uh, there was one too in Chicago where they lost an extra inning. Polanco hit a go-ahead home run, and then I think it was Valverde, if he was on the team, or I forget who the closer was. It might have been Rodney. Um, gave up a home run right in the bottom half, and they lost the crusher at the cell. And I knelt down next to him, and I, it was Rodney. And I said, Jim, uh, Rodney in the night. Not good. Next question. <laughs> and like, before I could even ask the question. And then he, then he, then he, then he asked, then he asked me, I, he said, well, what do you think? How do you think he did? I said, well, I don't think he was very good. Exactly. Next question. And I mean, just these, these back and forth that you'd have with him. Uh, I, I think if he, do you think if he looked back at himself in those scenarios, he would laugh and shake his head? I kind of think he would. I think he would think it's funny and I don't think he'd even be remorseful about it but I think he would almost be laughing at himself and how he reacted in those situations. Oh yeah. I think he was pulling the strings and he knew exactly what he wanted and what he was going to do, but it's, it's frustrating even at the highest level. It's like, it's no different than a, a fan, but you make your choice and you know, people are going to have to ask you about it and you, you, you make your call and, and, uh, and then you move on. He was good at, at turning the page. I remember a, a double header against the the Rangers late in the year of the season. They blew it. It was like a week or two before that, but you know, he had had half of his lineup out. It was a B team for the first game and they were listless. They did nothing. And of course you got to ask him that. And so even before the question gets out, like, yeah, Jim, the lineup, he's like, well, who are you going to put in there? I don't know. I, Sheffield. He's like, who else? I'm like, I don't know. I remember like, you know, that. Polanco? I remember that. No, anybody got any good <laughs> questions? You know, and then that was it. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, he was able to just shut it down and, and move on because that was the whole that was the whole key to the first game. But there was no reason to to chew on it too much. He had another game, and yeah. yeah well, who, the, the best part was was that you basically referenced all the people that should have been in the lineup, <laughs> you know. And instead of acknowledging that, he was just like, "Yeah, exactly. All right, whatever." And it, you know, he, he it's like he could never do anything wrong. You know what I mean? But but in the eyes of the media, he always felt like we were trying to come at him and create stories and all this stuff. But, you know, most of the time we were just doing our job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's half of it with a manager. Like you have to get second guest and you have to, to deal with it all. You know, I wanted to ask you that there was a, there was a, a situation. It was Kobe this past January. It was on a Sunday and I'm doing a, a two to six show. And at two thirty, as I'm coming back from break, the music's playing in my ear and the producer comes on and says, TMZ says Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash. And I'm like, what? What did, what did he say? And then within a few minutes as I'm sitting there and, and I'm talking, you know, I, I saw a tweet from you. I'm, I'm trying to open up the TMZ story and it's not opening. I see it. But I, I see you like within seconds, maybe a minute there, confirming that there had been a crash. And I see LAPD having a, a similar one after you. Can you take me through those minutes? Or I mean, you at work, you seem like you you instantaneously were, were on that story. Yeah. So basically what happened is this. So I, I got the alert the same time your producer did um, that TMZ had made that report. And with ABC, I have access to all of these um, 
emails that go from all of the ABC stations. So we were getting emails from the assignment desk in Los Angeles as the information was coming in. So I was able to um, see this as it unfolded. And I'm, I'm looking at how, you know, they're, they've communicated with the police and what, what we can say and what we can't say. And a lot of this stuff in the emails is off the record because it's not confirmed. So they did a great job of having um, this confirmed that it was him within, I don't know if it was minutes, but it definitely was not very long that they had confirmed that, uh, well, first they had confirmed that there was a crash. And we have to be very careful being on the news side of things um, with these tweets because you don't want to say something that's incorrect. And especially with a story of that magnitude. So even though you're hearing things off the record and you're seeing other, you know, reports reportedly, you're seeing all these other people say these things, you know, I have to be very careful working with ABC that, you know, I don't overstep my bounds and say something that's factually incorrect. We can only say what we know at the time. And ABC had had confirmed there was a helicopter crash. And then a short time after that, we had confirmed that Kobe Bryant was, a victim of the crash. Um, so that I was able to put that, put that tweet out. Um, and I, I was definitely one of the first ones, um, based on the information that we were receiving from Los Angeles and, you know, with those stories. And then we had heard that Rick Fox might've been in there. You, you heard of, you see a lot of people reporting that. And it's one of those things where you're tempted to tweet it, but then you're like, you know what? You don't want to go down that road. And sure as heck, Rick Fox was not in the helicopter. So, um, with those with those stories, you see a lot of information flying around, but it's just so important to be correct. And you know, in this, as you know, in this day and age with Twitter, there's always a rush to be first when it, it should be the rush to be right. And we always uh, take pride on making sure that we're we're portraying and giving out the right information. Yeah, and you know, about 45 minutes after that, there were a number of different, not you outlets that were speculating that all five of his daughters were on board. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm not going there. Let me, let me tell you who that was. That was, that was one of our ABC correspondents working on the national side. And he ended up getting suspended for like a month for that. So there was a, there was a big time fallout from that, um, um, miscalculation on his part. But again, it's not like he just pulled this out of left field. He had heard from one of his sources what he thought was correct information and ended up not being correct. And again, in the heat of the moment, sometimes you get burned, but it just goes to show you that this you just have to be season? so very careful. Yeah. And you know, for me, it was, uh, it was one of these things where at two o'clock, right before I'm coming on the, the update guy was sitting there and he said, Hey, did you hear what, um, what happened with the bears? Their, their, their account got hacked. I don't know if you knew about this. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And he said, yeah, the group is saying that they can hack into anybody's uh, account. So this is kind of in the back of my head a half hour later when I see the TMZ thing. I get a lot of things going through my head, but right. I'm thinking, you know, TMZ, I'm not dismissing it. A lot of people see TMZ, but I remembered the, the years before when, when Michael Jackson, they reported that. I remember Terry Foster, he was working in the afternoon. He looked at it and he said, well, this is what TMZ is reporting. And of course they were right. So I'm thinking about that, but it was uh, – seeing somebody that I actually knew that I know, like, and then I'm thinking, you know, if field worked in California, here he is, he's not just going to, you know, he, he's going to have a little bit more than just looking at this TMZ story. So I felt like it wasn't uh, a, a hacked account that you weren't just, uh, you know, running with that. So it was a little bit more of something that, uh, you know, I, I felt was real at that time. Yeah. And, and you're in the same position, right? You're live on the air 
and you're trying to give information out, but you don't want to get burned either. So you have no. to be very careful about what you say. But, you know, to TMZ's credit, 99 times out of 100, they're going to be right. I mean, they break more big stories with their connections, and especially with celebrity death. Uh, they're on top of that faster than anybody. So it, it's pretty remarkable how quickly they can get information. Um, but, yeah, thankfully they uh, – well, not thankfully, but it, they proved to be right. And, um, you know, the story just kind of took on a life of its own, and, and, and it, it's still kind of hard to believe that it happened. Uh, and it's also hard to believe that it was only a few months ago because the way this pandemic has unfolded, that feels like that was three years ago that that happened. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I'll give you some quick hitters here. You know, from from Kobe, I, I go to the bad boys. You know, we've had the last dance. And I saw you, you know, get in there and, and uh, you know, firing away, you know, at some fans and, and you know, getting the Pistons back and, you know, with the whole thing. And, you know, I'm, I am I was, you know, I'm old enough now where that was like, you know, when I'm a young kid, like that was larger than life watching Isaiah go through all of that. But over the years, I know people don't respect Isaiah and they certainly don't Isaac, uh, respect the Pistons. So when this came around, it was very predictable for me that I knew people were going to be like, Isaiah's not all that. You know, Isaiah's a jerk. The Pistons are jerks. The Pistons are hacks. That's how everybody outside of Detroit looked at him. Yeah, no question about it. And again, the thing you have to remember about this documentary, uh, if you want to put that in loose terms, uh, first off, it's fantastic. It's tremendously produced. The interviews are great. The music, everything, the, the footage, the access, top notch. But you also have to remember, this is being told through Michael Jordan's perspective. And this is all being told through his lens and his point of view and he had final say how things are portrayed and everything else so there's not going to be much in here that's going to make him look bad i mean obviously the gambling thing they had to put in there because that's just a part of his story there's really not much they could do to sugarcoat that but you know as far as the bad boys thing you knew he was going to be salty towards them you knew he was going to say that he hates isaiah that he still pissed at him all these years later uh but look at it this way as i had to point out to a lot of these chicago fans on twitter uh, kindly, of course, I pointed out. I mean, that the Pistons were the only team that beat Michael Jordan that has a winning record against him in the postseason. The Bad Boys won three out of the four playoff series against him. So as a guy who loved nothing more than to win, you know that still eats away at him all these years later that the Pistons are 3-1 and one against him in the playoffs, and Isaiah got the best of him three out of four times. And that just does not sit well with him, frankly. And, you know, the whole handshakes and everything else, you know, whatever. I mean, people are still going to be weird about that. They weren't pissed with them when the Celtics did it. Um, you know, Jordan and, and Phil Jackson trashed the Pistons the day before they eliminated him in the media. But of course, that wasn't in the documentary for some perspective on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you and I lived in Detroit. We, we were there growing up. We saw how great it was. And a part of me still loves the fact that the bad boys are despised everywhere else in the country except in Michigan. And uh, they kind of embodied our our city and our spirit. And uh, they were the perfect champions. And frankly, a, a team all these years later that still doesn't get the credit it's due in the sense that they won back-to-back -back in the NBA heyday with Magic, Michael, Larry Bird. And they won back-to-back -back championships and frankly should have won three in a row uh, if it weren't for that phantom foul and a sprained ankle. So, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I think we're just kind of used to it at this point. And to your point, you knew the documentary wasn't going to give them uh, much credit. Yeah, and they could have gone to four finals if, if Isaiah didn't throw that one away, you know, to yeah, birds. Exactly. So right. They really were, and I think they had to have, Isaiah had to have that 
kind of mentality. It, like he was telling Joe, like, no, don't be nice to, to MJ. It was like uh, they had to circle the wagons. They had to have it like us against the world and against the left coast and right coast and everything else because everybody wanted uh, – when Jordan came along, Stern was changing the rules for him. So they really had to, you know, close ranks. Uh, it, you almost had to have that that kind of leader in Isaiah to have that kind of mentality. Or I, I don't think it would have worked. I don't. I don't. So it, it, yeah. it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. And you know, I think a lot of Isaiah's things that happened off the court, you know, after his playing days were over with. You know, the Raptors and the Knicks, and I think there was a sexual misconduct allegation in there too, if I recall. Um, so, you know, he's had a lot of negative press over the years, but, and I'm sure you saw the ESPN rankings, how they had Steve Nash and, uh, John Stockton ranking. Come on, man. And it, I mean, but that just goes to show you people, people are using what happened off the court and the whole handshake thing and all these other things that he's done, uh, in a negative light, uh, off the, after his playing days were over, they're using that to judge how good of a basketball player he was. This guy was unbelievable. And the fact that he still has to fight for respect, and especially after this documentary, he was making all the media rounds trying to defend himself and defend the Pistons. The fact that he has to do that is frankly just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I like Steve Nash as much as the next guy, but there's absolutely yeah, no argument. Yeah, come on. Yeah, you can't yeah. even make the argument. You know what? Uh, I, I Talking about uh, bad press, I saw what – it was actually good press for you, but it was an endorsement from Mike Francesa who – you know, it's like the the king of sports talk nationally, and you know, uh, he's on Mount Rushmore, all of those things. But uh, he had a uh, a tweet, and it was somewhat like uh, TV guys aren't good, but this field guy's not bad, which was kind of a backhanded compliment. But you know, coming from him, I, I imagine that felt pretty good. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, I think that was actually a Francesa, um, not a burner account, but like a, like a fake Francesa <laughs> oh, account. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it, the thing still had like several thousand followers, and the tweet was, um, to me, Ryan Field is the best sportscaster in New York, which goes to show you how bad sportscasters are in New York. <laughs> so okay. it actually sounds like something that Mike Francesa would say, a backhanded right. compliment. Yeah. So it, it, it was easy to, uh, to make that mistake. But, dude, I mean, people tell you it goes back to the guy at Yankee Stadium with you. I mean, they tell you how they feel in this town. Uh, and a lot of the tweets that I've received, um, I I'm, frankly, are not fit to be said on a podcast from people. Um, you know, but that, but that's, I mean, growing up in Detroit, I mean, you, you worked in Detroit, you know how the fans are there. I mean, they're, they're just as crazy here about their teams. You just have more of the teams. Um, so people are very passionate about their sports. Um, and, and frankly, it's been a pleasure to work here and, and to bring the sports to these folks, uh, five nights a week. It's been awesome. Well, tell Jet fans I'm picking the Lions to go nine and seven, but the AFC East, I'm, I'm not picking the Pats or the Bills, who I think are going to be a, a team that a lot of people are going to go to, and I'm not picking the Dolphins. I'm picking the the Jets. The J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. they could do it. I mean, I don't feel great about it, but, you know. I wouldn't I, feel great about that either if I were you. <laughs> I don't feel great. <laughs> I'm just doing Hey, You get to do a lot of cool things uh, as a sports anchor. I, You know, I, I saw you on Jeopardy a couple years ago giving a clue, and I'm like, wow, man, you know, that is awesome. But, you know, you're putting on football pads. You're going in race cars. Give me a, give me a favorite thing that you've been able to do with your job there where you, you know, you're down there on the field talking with Aaron Boone at, at opening day for the Yankee stadium, like that kind of stuff. I'm looking at him like, that is awesome. Uh, what's your favorite part? Yeah, man, it's been, it's been a hell of a ride. Like I said, and we do these things called field trips, which is a play off my last name. 
and we go on these fun little adventures. I played um, basketball with the Harlem Globetrotters at Madison Square Garden. Uh, knocked down my only three that they gave me. The crowd went crazy. Uh, that was definitely up there. Um, but I think the coolest thing I've done, and especially this will resonate with folks now after what just happened last week, um, but I got to fly with the Thunderbirds. Uh, basically, I was goose to the pilot's Maverick, uh, and I was sitting right behind him, and he took me on an hour and 10-minute flight and took me through the whole thing. Uh, I had to do all the, the G-testing and training. It was like a three-hour course before that, beforehand. They even had to show me how to use the parachute because we were going to be flying over water. And he said, dude, he said, I can't help you eject. Uh, I can help you eject, but I can't help you control the parachute. So you have to know what you're doing in case we go down. I mean, they're, they're literally laying all this on you, and you're going, holy smokes, this is a real deal. But, yeah, we, we pulled nine Gs, uh, which is 1,800 pounds of force coming down on you. Uh, we pulled that in an, in an F-16, which was, uh, or might have been F-14, um, but it was it was the coolest thing I've ever done. And uh, I think that was probably my favorite field trip. And, you know, I've been blessed to be able to do these fun adventures and get some of this, like, behind the velvet ropes access um, with this job. And uh, I, I definitely don't take it for granted one bit. On a scale from 1 to 100, where, uh, one, you were just cool as a cu- cucumber, or 100 <laughs> when it was going on, like you were, thought you were going to die, where were you at? Uh, I was, uh, when we pulled, we, he waited till the very end of an hour and 10 minute ride. We had been doing barrel rolls and backflips and doing all this other stuff. And he waited until the end of that hour and 10 minute ride to pull nine G's, which even for experienced pilots like him, he says, uh, it takes a lot of work in terms of the breathing that you have to do to get through it without passing out. And he counted down from 10. He said, it's going to take 10 seconds to get to nine G's. And I kid you not, Dennis Fithian, by the time we got to two, my eyes were rolling into the back of my head because I was about to pass out. And I did not throw up. So because I did not throw up, I'm going to say I was 99 out of 100. But it was it was pretty darn close to being 100, being, uh, you know, scared for my life. But it was uh, the, the greatest thrill ride you could ever possibly go on. Wow, that might have been a field trip I would have called in sick on. Hey, uh, I appreciate <laughs> your time. I wanted to ask you, I think I might have a story for you, but you, you might know who this guy is and have already talked with him. I was listening today to a podcast. I, have you ever uh, heard of a guy named Ben Alito? He works for the, the, the New York Giants for football, the Mets, New York Firefighters. He's a... A discipline of a mind-body tennis connection guy. You ever heard of that guy? I have not heard of him. Well, I was listening. This uh, Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll have a have a podcast that they do on the Ringer Network. So the the, the last one that they did, they're talking about this uh, this guy who's a this guy is a is a discipline. He's from you know works with all the New York teams there. But but Carroll and and Kerr swear by him, and and it's amazing. This guy wrote a tennis book back in the day. And they use all of these, um, you know, mental tricks. Kerr used to read it two times every season. And, and Carol wrote the forward for his book, you know, that was uh, put out there again like 10 years ago. But, you know, Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball and the Blind Side, he was on their podcast. And so they were talking about it. And he had this particular guy work with his daughter. And, you know, the, the stories he was telling was amazing. And his name, it, it's something like uh, Ben Alito. But man, you got to talk to that guy. He sounds like uh, sounds like he'd be a pretty good guest. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We will make that happen, especially if uh, you know two of the best at what they do, and Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr swear by this guy. You know, he must be legit. Yeah, check that podcast out. Hey, thanks for coming on my podcast, and uh, all the best to you. And 
Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, like everybody else, uh, you know, one day we we get back and we're, you know, we're we're talking about, you know, what Tom Izzo's doing in the tournament and, you know, how Mel Tucker and and, and Jim Harbaugh are, are facing off, all those kind of things. And, you know, we look forward to that day. It can't come soon enough, man. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. All right. Hey, take care, Ryan. You too, Dennis. There he is, Ryan Field. Joining me here, that was uh, and that guy. Got a lot of stories. That's why you you go out there and you you bring them on. Well, special thanks to Field now to baseball as promised. The Detroit Tigers, MLB, and here's some things that I'm thinking about. If there's going to be a season, gonna be an 82 game slate, or like Bryce Harper wanted to get it up into the 130s with some double headers on Sunday, seven inning double header. So you know it all remains to be seen. A lot of us, all of us, have our fingers crossed on a July 4 start. Maybe get some baseball in there. And for the Tigers, when you just think about it, you just look at their starters here, and you know if they have the the compressed season. Uh, some thoughts of maybe a, a four-man rotation. If they go to the Harper plan, you could have a six-man rotation when you're talking about short double headers on Sunday. So who knows how all that's going to work out. You know that the Tigers have two veterans if uh, the, the season was starting in July in their, in their starting rotation. One is Jordan Zimmerman, who's in that final year of the $25 million deal. And the other guy that they signed this year, as a free agent, the veteran Ivan Nova for a million and a half. A bit of a contrast there from 25 mil for uh, Zim, Jordan Zimmerman, to uh, Nova for 1.5. But, yeah, the hope uh, – I wonder what the, the trading deadline will look like in an 82-game sprint to the finish. Uh, you know, they still are going to have one. Will they be able to get something for maybe – one uh, or or both of those guys. So probably neither, but, you know, those are the kind of things that you hope for. And then uh, also in that rotation, uh, the, the two guys that intrigue me that could, you know, still take some step forward, uh, take some steps forward. One is uh, Daniel Norris. He's 27. Remember when uh, he came in, he came in with Matt Boyd, both of them from the Blue Jays for David Price. And Norris was looked at the as the much – better prospect there. And we know that's not how it has gone here, but there's, you know, there's still some intrigue with Norris. And then the other guy who like Daniel Norris is also 27 years old is Spencer Turnbull. And if there was one thing that I took out, well, there were a couple things that I took out of spring training this year, just listening to Dan Dickerson and Jim Price do some games is that Turnbull had his stuff and, and Dickerson was uh, giddy over his his prospects, saying that, you know, there's just no cap on his ceiling. You know, you look at his record from last year. I mean, the Tigers lost 114 games. You know how that went. But, uh, you know, his stuff, and uh, there is some possibility there for Turnbull. Of course, the other guy up at the top of that rotation is is Matthew Boyd. And this week I listened to a podcast with – Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll and the Warriors basketball head coach Steve Kerr. You're familiar with both of those guys, Carroll and and Kerr, but they do a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, and they were doing a pod talking with Michael Lewis. Lewis was uh, the author of Moneyball 
and the blind side and also the big short. And guess what? He does a pod. But he was talking with Carol and Kerr, and they were talking some analytics and, and the next step in the progression of analytics. And they went to Lewis did talking about a little league coach named Kyle Bodie and how he looked at the throwing motion and using heavy balls. And he figured out that that arm speed was a big deal here. And he was finding guys and working with them that had the arm speed, but not necessarily the fastball. And he talked about being able to develop those kind of guys and uh, here's Lewis. And we talked to, there's a pitcher named Matt Boyd, now in the rotation at the Detroit Tigers. But he was like a, whatever, 18th round draft pick, and he was in A ball and wasn't going anywhere, and he had an 88 mile and a fastball. He goes in to see Kyle Bodie, and Kyle Bodie hooks him up all these sensors. And, he's, and, the guy, and, and Kyle sees this guy, his arm speed is there. And he starts to work with him. And what he does is he gives him extremely heavy balls to throw on that theory that the body will naturally try to figure out what the efficient way to throw them is because it's so uncomfortable throwing. Three months later, he's throwing 96, and he goes from A ball into, in, into the big leagues. And it's a really good example of, you're right, the, the, the first place that the data revolution sort of hit in baseball, because it was the low-hanging fruit and because there's so much value in it. Yeah, it well, that's a little bit of Lewis there. And you know what? Over the, the last year or so, I know talking with, with Pat Caputo, who used to be my partner on the radio, Pat was talking about the pitch tunnel, and people were, uh, pitch tunnel, what's that? And then, you know, spin rate was a, a cousin of that before that people were like, I think they got that. Like you have, uh, the weird thing about spin rate is that it, it seems like you're born with it and you, you can't, as much as you might try to increase your spin rate, I, you know, you either have it or not. That That's, that's a weird thing. It's a, it's a weird dynamic. Like uh, here you are as a pitcher, and for some reason, some guys have better spin rates than uh, than others. And uh, you know, I'm going to put the pitch tunnel over here for a second. But there's uh, you know the the next phase in there with with Matthew Boyd and the arm speed. And Lewis just talked a little bit more, uh, just uh, diving into those uh, next steps in analytics. Figure out how to value the people as they were, and the next thing really is like how you change them, how you make them better. And, it is, and it's also true that for whatever reason, in the evaluation of the players, it's easy to see why. Because baseball is such a static station-to-station -station sport. You can really easily assign credit and blame on a baseball field. It's harder on a football field or a basketball court. But with the player development, it's not as obvious why this should just be confined to baseball. I mean, I, I wonder. I mean, I just think this is something you might think about. Uh, shooting form. Like, there's got to be some provable best way to shoot a basketball. Well, and if you go on, you can check out uh, both uh, Michael Lewis, I guess all three of them, Carol and Kerr with Michael Lewis on the Ringer Podcast Network. It shows up on their NFL show. So you, and thanks to those guys for that, that audio there. It's a, it's an interesting podcast that uh, almost goes an hour and they're just kicking that stuff around with, uh, with Lewis. But yes, yeah, Steve Kerr does talk about that. It comes down to the arc when you're shooting a, a basketball. And you know what? Before I go back and talk a little bit more about the, the Tigers, it just it reminded me back in high school. Now, I was a shooting guard, but I really couldn't shoot, which says a lot, you know, about my high school basketball career being a two-guard that, that really couldn't shoot. You know, I, I was better than your, your average high school student, you know, 
way better than them, but as a, you know, varsity basketball player that, that can't shoot, that's, that's something that you need. I was a defensive shooting guard, so it didn't work. But a year after I got out of high school, I was at Schoolcraft College, and I was walking on with the, the basketball team there. They let me go through the practices with them. I was a practice player. But they went through a lot of different shooting drills. And then it's like, uh, you know, maybe like your first kiss or something. You, you don't forget if you become, and I'll say now, and, and then when I was around 18, 19 years old, I remember it when it happened. I'm like, I got it. I got the touch. I'm a good shooter now. And you know what it was? It really was about the arc. Yeah, you know, you have to have your motion and everything that, you know, and it's repetitive and there's a lot of things that, you go through to get there. But when I finally got it, it was just throwing it up there, tossing it up there. And it was about that arc. And yeah, I probably peaked as a shooter at, you know, like, you know, 28, 30 years old, not as good as I was back then. I can still throw it up there, but I, I thought that was interesting. And if you'd have asked me before, I don't know what if I would have, if I would have said that, I think practice and I'd have said it clicked in. But when I heard Kerr talking about the arc and a guy that knows a little bit about uh, shooting, himself uh it just reminded me now you know that that tiger starting rotation of of boyd and norris and zimmerman turnbull and nova that's what they'll go with but we keep waiting for what we're going to see with that next group and and will we see a casey buys who was the number one overall pick will we see matt manning the first rounder for a couple years ago will we see Tarek Skubal, who was throwing as a lefty in spring training this year, what did he hit? Ninety upper nineties. I was going to say ninety-eight, which is upper nineties, but I I think I wrote it down. In fact, I can just check my notes. I, upper nineties, but as a lefty, and you know he was a low round pick, but obviously just hit. Yeah, Tarek Skubal hit ninety-eight this year down in spring training. So those would be the three guys that you know you you hope even in a short season or whatever, maybe you just get a taste or look and and see those guys. Uh, but, yeah, just talking a little baseball here. And, you know, next time I'll talk about the big four, the big four that the, the Tigers brought in as free agents. That's Crone, Scope, Maven, and Romine and what they might be able to do if, yeah, if they get a season going and, if we're able to talk about that, that will definitely be one of the things that we will be hitting on. You know, the other thing is uh, it happened over this weekend is Bryce Harper from the Phillies put out a post on Instagram about wanting to play a lot more games than the 82, which is the proposal right now. And they'll go back and forth on that. But that part about the seven inning Sunday doubleheaders was uh, the thing that jumped out to me. I love that idea, you know, a couple years ago, and this is if they do come back, you get a chance. Like, they can tinker with so many different things, and that would be one of them that I would be a proponent of. A couple years ago when Rob Manfred, the commissioner, was talking about speeding up the game and trying all these different things, I thought, you know what, if they went to seven innings, that would speed up the game. (laughs) You could still have the game, and I at least wanted to see how it would look. I know that going to a lot of college baseball games, they play – seven-inning doubleheaders a lot on the weekends. And, yeah, those things seem like they fly by. And if that's what baseball wants for the game to fly by, I know it it uh, affects the 
the starters, the closers, the staffs. Uh, it, it affects everything, you know, if you lop off a couple innings. But in, in a season, if they have one, that everybody's just going to look forward to anyways just because it's there, being able to try some different things. I would like an experimental seven-inning Sunday doubleheader approach. But, you know, that is me. All right. Uh, thanks to Ryan Field for all of his time. Also, the Ringer for that audio. And and you out there for listening. Coming up this week, Vincent Goodwill from Yahoo Sports. Matt Shepard talks some more Tigers uh, with the TV voice of the Tigers. Plus, I'll be adding headlines and, you know, news of the day. So all of that coming your way here as we get ready to close down May and look forward to June. That's going to do it. Everybody have uh, a great week, and I'll talk with you again coming up on Wednesday. Wednesday.